Good morning, Gospel City. My name is Mitch Helmkamp. It's a privilege to be a pastor here. It's a privilege to open God's word with you this morning. So open your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 43 through 51 this morning. And if you've been with us, you know that John 1 is a firework show of Christology. John makes epic statement after epic statement about the identity of Jesus. He starts off with a bang by revealing that Jesus is the eternal son who was in the beginning with God. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the source of life and light for all men. He goes on to show that the eternal son of God took on human flesh. He added humanity to his deity. The creator of humans became human so that he could dwell with humans. The creator of the world came into the world to dwell among us. Then John tells us that Jesus is the revelation of the glory of God, that no one has ever seen God, and yet Jesus has made him known. And that's just the prologue. I mean, it's a fireworks show that just keeps going. John the Baptist comes on the scene and declares that he is, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3. He says that he is the voice in the wilderness, crying out, make straight the way for Yahweh. And then right after John declares that his mission is to prepare the way for Yahweh, he looks up and sees Jesus coming and he says, look, there he is. And if we put two and two together, John the Baptist is implying that Jesus is Yahweh. Then John declares that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. And so Yahweh has come to save his people from their sins by being a substitutionary sacrifice as a lamb. And it makes sense if you think about it, because who could save us from the wrath of God other than God himself? And John the Baptist says, look, behold, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And John keeps going, the spirit descends on Jesus. So John, we have John's testimony, we have John the Baptist's testimony, now we have the spirit's testimony. The spirit descends on Jesus, confirming that he is the anointed one. We have disciples following Jesus. We have disciples declaring Jesus to be the Christ. As one commentator said, John 1 is a bountiful bonanza of Christology. I call it a fireworks show. And believe it or not, if John 1 is a fireworks show, the passage that we have before us is the grand finale. So here's where we're headed today. Last, last week, Pastor Tyler did a, a great job of helping us see four marks of a true disciple. This is what a disciple looks like. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This passage that we have before us today is similar, but we're going to take a different angle. We're going we're to consider why we should follow Jesus. We're going to consider who he is and why we should follow him. And so what we have for us today is six rapid fire reasons for why we should follow Jesus. And with that in mind, hear the word of the Lord. Starting in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, 
how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for revealing to us that in the beginning was the word and the word was with you and the word was you. We thank you that you have sent your son so that the word who was in the beginning became flesh and dwelt among us. And we thank you that through him, we have seen your glory, glory as of the only father, full of grace and truth. And that from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. We thank you for John the Baptist's testimony that Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world as our sacrificial substitutionary atonement. We thank you for revealing to us through John that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, he's the King of Israel, he's the Son of Man. And Lord, we believe these things. We believe that Jesus is the Christ and that we believe that he is the Son of God. And Lord, we believe that by believing these things, we might have life in his name, life to the fullest forevermore. And so Lord, we pray that through your word this morning, you would help us to marvel at the King you have called us to follow. You would help us to marvel at the king who left heaven's throne to summon followers for himself to usher them into his eternal kingdom forevermore. And Lord, if there's anyone here who does not follow Jesus, who is not a believer in Jesus, Lord, we pray that through your word you would open the eyes of their heart, that you would pierce them like a sword, that you would help them to see that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the only way. And Lord, We thank you for your word. Lord, we believe it. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. Six rapid fire reasons for why we follow Jesus. Number one, follow Jesus, for he is a pursuing savior. He is a pursuing savior. So look down at verse 43. It says, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. So in the previous passage, the passage that Pastor Tyler preached for us last week, um, Jesus is near the Jordan River. He's near where John the Baptist is baptizing. And we, we don't know the exact location where John the Baptist was baptizing, but we do know that it's somewhere down near Jerusalem because people from Jerusalem were coming to see him. And Jerusalem is in the southern part of the nation of Israel. And as we just read in verse 43, Jesus decides to go to Galilee. And Galilee was in the northern part of the country. So if you notice the word decided, in between the decision to go to Galilee and then actually arriving in Galilee was approximately a hundred mile journey, mostly uphill. And as soon as he gets there, he finds Philip and he summons him, follow me. And so I just want us to notice the, the personal sacrifice and the intentionality on Jesus' part. I mean, he travels 100 miles north through rugged terrain, walking up rocky desert roads, surely passing many people on the way who he doesn't summon to follow him. And he goes with one mission in mind. As soon as he gets there, he finds Philip and he summons him, follow me. Philip didn't even know he was lost 
Philip was just going along like it was if any other day. And then the king of creation, the creator of the world shows up and summons him, follow me, and changes his eternity forever. In Gospel City, it's worth reminding that Jesus has done something similar for us. Because the farthest distance anyone could ever travel is from heaven down to earth. And yet Jesus came down to seek and to save the lost. He doesn't merely save people who are looking for him. In fact, Romans 3 assures us that no one seeks after God. No one is looking for God. God is not the one who is lost. We are lost. And yet Jesus finds us. And Jesus summons us to follow him. So Gospel City, follow Jesus, for he is a pursuing savior who left heaven's throne to come and to seek and to save you and me. Number two, follow Jesus, for he is a promised savior. Follow Jesus, for he is a promised savior. So look down at verse 44. It says, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Now first, I want us to notice the pattern of discipleship that continues from the previous passage. So last week, Pastor Tyler helped us see that Andrew starts following Jesus and the first thing that he does after he follows Jesus is he immediately goes and tells his brother Andrew or his brother Simon Peter to follow Jesus. And then the same thing happens here in this passage. Philip starts following Jesus, and the first thing that scripture records that he does upon being a follower of Jesus is he goes and he finds Nathanael, encourages him to follow Jesus. So may that pattern of discipleship sink in. But next, I want us to focus on on the way Philip describes Jesus to Nathanael. He says, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. And so the, the law and the prophets is, is a way that Jews during New, New Testament times, or, or uh, during Jesus' time, would refer to the Old Testament. They didn't have a New Testament yet, so they didn't call it the Old Testament. They called it the law and the prophets. So when you hear that, think Old Testament. So Philip is declaring that we found the one who the Old Testament told us to look for. We found the one whom the Old Testament promises and anticipates. We found the one whom the Old Testament is about. And so don't miss this. Because if if this is true, and we here at Gospel City believe it is, this is the greatest news in all the world, that Jesus is the one whom the Old Testament told us to look for. Because if we consider who the Old Testament tells us to look for, I mean, Genesis 3.15 tells us to look for an offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent and reverse the curse of sin and death. The one who will come and make all things new, all things right. Genesis 12 tells us to look for an offspring of Abraham who will be Through him, he will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Genesis 49 tells us to look for a king from Judah's line. Deuteronomy 18 tells us to look for a prophet greater than Moses. I mean, greater than Moses. A leader greater than Moses. A savior greater than Moses. 2 Samuel 7 tells us to look for a king greater than David. In Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11... Daniel 7, all over the prophets, tell us to look for a king who will usher in a universal kingdom of everlasting peace and righteousness. And all of these refer to the same Messiah. They're all telling us to look for the same one, the seed of the woman from Genesis 3, the one who will reverse the curse of sin and death, the promised king, the promised savior, who will come and make all things new. 
And Philip tells Nathaniel, the one we've been waiting for, for thousands of years, the one who fulfills everything that the Old Testament promises and anticipates, he's here, Jesus of Nazareth. So Gospel City, there's a tendency in our, our Christian circles to avoid the Old Testament. We think it's boring or confusing or maybe even irrelevant. We might even think we should unhitch ourselves from it completely because we think it's politically incorrect and might hurt our witness. But let me encourage you. The Old Testament is not just a bunch of random, unrelated, moralistic stories tied together. Just the necessary long introduction until you get to the good stuff in the New Testament. The Old Testament instead is is one story that proclaims the glory of Jesus from beginning to end. The Old Testament is unpacking promise after promise of the anticipated Savior who will come. And then Paul says in 2 Corinthians that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. And so in order to understand who Christ is and how he fulfills these promises, we need to know the Old Testament because we need to know what promise he fulfills. So if we're going to be followers of Christ, we need to know, we need to love, we need to cherish, and we need to Love this book that is all about Christ. And 80% of the book is Old Testament. And so Gospel City, don't, don't settle for being New Testament Christians. Let's be whole Bible Christians because the whole Bible proclaims the glory of Christ from beginning to end. And the Old Testament, or the New Testament, is written to understand how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. So we want to love and follow and cherish Jesus It is really important to understand how he is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament anticipates. So what the Old Testament promised, Jesus fulfills. We follow a promised Savior. So number three, I said these are rapid fire, they're going to keep coming. Follow Jesus for he is a compelling Savior. A compelling Savior. So look down at verse 46. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. So first of all, this is kind of funny because, I mean, you can imagine that um, Philip's pretty excited. He's like, we found found the one we've been looking for for thousands of years. And instead of being really excited and wanting to come and see, first Nathaniel's skeptical. Like, uh, rather than focusing on how he's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, he focuses on that one word, Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so the problem is, every good student of the Old Testament knows that the promised king, the promised savior, is going to come from Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 says it plainly. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel. And so this is why Nathaniel responds by saying, Jesus of Nazareth... Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. How can Jesus of Nazareth be the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament's written about? Now we know that um, from other gospels that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and yet raised in Nazareth. So it would be appropriate to call him Jesus of Nazareth and yet he still fulfills the prophecy that the, the savior of the world would be born in Bethlehem. And yet at this point for Nathaniel, it, it is a fair question even though his tone might have been a little condescending. And yet, notice Philip's response to Nathaniel. This is, this is beautiful. Verse 46, he simply says, come and see. Just come and see. 
And so it was politically incorrect to believe in a Messiah from Nazareth. I mean, Nazareth was an insignificant village. In the time of Jesus, it was less than 2,000 people. People living in the hills, a very poor community. Literally, people living in caves. And yet, people, and yet Philip is so confident that Jesus is so compelling, so beautiful, so convincing, that he doesn't, he doesn't try to shave off the politically incorrect edges of Jesus. He doesn't try to make Jesus culturally relevant. He just tells Nathaniel, just come and see. Just come and see this Jesus of Nazareth. It's so beautiful and simple, and yet it's profound. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says, come and see. As a gospel city, we, we live in a culture where the Jesus of the Bible is politically incorrect. We live in a culture that believes that truth is relative. And yet Jesus says, I am the truth. We believe in a culture that believes that all religions lead to God. And yet Jesus says, I am the way, and no one comes to the Father except through me. We live in a culture that says everything is sexually permissible as long as there is consent. And yet Jesus says marriage is between one man and one woman for a lifetime, and if you even look at a woman who's not your wife with lustful intent, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. And so let me encourage you to be like Philip. Even though we live in a culture with, where Jesus is politically incorrect, we don't have to sugarcoat Jesus. He's compelling the way he is. Just invite the skeptics in your life to come and see. Just come and see. Because the reality is Jesus' truth is way more compelling than the world's truth. And the world is longing for a truth more compelling than their truth. Jesus' way is much easier than the world's way. And the world knows it, which is why they're heaped in guilt and depression and anxiety. And Jesus' definition of sex is so much more fulfilling than the world's definition of sex. So just invite people to come and see because we follow a compelling savior. Number four, follow Jesus for he is an intimate savior. He is an intimate savior. Look down at verse 47. It says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So, Nathanael, despite his skepticism, accepts Philip's invitation to come and see. As he walks towards Jesus, Jesus cries out, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And so Jesus' response to Nathanael could be a little confusing, but you know, you know those types of people who are just, you know, they're, sh they're straight shooters. They don't, they don't sugarcoat anything. What, what they see is, and what they think is what they say. Well, this is essentially how Jesus is describing Nathanael. In him there is no deceit. He's a, he's a straight shooter. And if you think back to the comment he just made, Jesus of Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You can, you can tell what Jesus is getting at. And yet Jesus didn't hear him make that statement. And apparently Jesus sums up Nathanael's character perfectly because in verse 48, Nathanael says to him, how, how do you know me? He's like, Jesus, we've never met. How do you know that I'm a straight shooter? What, what is the source of your information? 
And obviously the question would imply, you know, did Philip tell you, the, tell you this about me? What, you know, who told you that I'm a straight shooter? And yet let's consider Jesus' response because it's rather shocking. In verse 48, uh, Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So, <clears throat> um, in Jesus' day, it was common for Jews to have a, a fig tree in their courtyard, and it, it provided good shade um, and privacy. And they'd often read or study, it would, it would provide shade from the sun. And so when, um, when Jesus is saying, I saw you under the fig tree, he's not saying I was peeking through the stone wall of the courtyard and, and then seeing you under the fig tree spying on you. No, he's, he's revealing a, a supernatural knowledge. He's revealing that he could see Philip because he can see everything. Or he could see Nathaniel because he can see everything. And later in the gospel, Jesus reveals that he can read minds and that he knows what is, what's in the hearts of men. He heals people from a distance that he's never even met. And so Jesus is giving us a window into his supernatural knowledge that even though Nathaniel was under the fig tree where no one should have been able to see him, he saw him. And so when Philip asked, or Nathaniel, sorry, Nathaniel asked, Jesus, how do you know me? Jesus, Jesus is like, oh, Nathaniel, I know, I know you more than you, you even know. So here he reveals to Nathaniel that he can see him even when no one else could. As a gospel city, some of us here this morning feel, feel unknown. We feel unseen. We might feel unknown by our spouse. We might feel unseen by our, our peers at school. We might even feel unknown and unseen here at church. But let me encourage you, the God of the universe knows you better than you know yourself. The creator of heaven and earth sees you even when no one else sees you. So be encouraged this morning, we follow an intimate savior an intimate savior who knows your personality, who sees you even when no one else does, who knows you and loves you and sees you. And others here, we need to be warned because that relationship that we have that we think no one else knows about, Jesus knows. And that stuff that we do when we think no one's watching, <laughs> Jesus sees. And the thoughts we think, the desires we feel, Jesus knows our hearts are better than we know ourselves. So we follow an intimate savior who sees us and knows us and may that be an encouragement and a warning to us all. We follow an intimate savior. Number five, that brings us to number five, follow Jesus for he is the long awaited royal savior. The long awaited royal savior. So look down at verse 49. Nathanael answers Jesus, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So Nathanael started out a skeptic, but by now he's heard and he's seen enough. He has Philip's testimony that Jesus is everything the Old Testament anticipated. He has Jesus' supernatural knowledge of him, his perfect spot-on assessment of his personality. Surely this is the one. Surely this is the long-awaited savior. And yet, I want us to notice the specific titles that Nathaniel prescribes to Jesus. Nathaniel calls him the son of God and the king of Israel, the, the true king. 
And these, these titles are really important because they, they help us understand what type of savior Jesus is, and therefore what type of savior we follow. For Jesus to be the son of God and the true king means that he is the Messiah that the world has been waiting for ever since Genesis 3. So son of God and, and king of Israel are messianic terms that are related but a little different. So ever since Genesis 3, the world has been waiting for a savior who will be a king worthy of the title son of God. So I want, us to, I want us to take some time to consider these two titles. I want us to consider how Old Testament re- reveals that the Savior will be a king, and he'll be a king worthy of the title Son of God. So first, let's start with kingship. The theme of kingship is introduced to us on the first page of the Bible. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed Adam and Eve, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. And so dominion is a kingly word. God created Adam and Eve to have dominion over the creation that he made. He created them to be his servant kings, and then he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with other servant kings, exercising dominion on his, over his creation on his behalf. And yet we know the story. Instead of ruling creation on behalf of God as his servant kings, they want to rule creation instead of God. They rebel against him, they sin, they get kicked out of the garden. And yet in God's grace, he promises to send a savior who will reverse the curse of sin and death. And this savior will be what Adam was supposed to be, a king who images God and exercises dominion on his behalf, ruling his creation, not rebelling against the creator, but ruling his creation with justice and righteousness in a way that honors God. And the rest of the Old Testament is, built, is written to build the anticipation of this coming king. Genesis 12 reveals that, the God, that God's going to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham's offspring. So the implication is this, this promised king is going to come through the line of Abraham, which is why the rest of the Old Testament traces Abraham's family. Genesis 49, we learn that the promised king is going to come um, from the line of Judah, Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So Isaiah, or Genesis 49 is talking about this promised king this, the, from the tribe of Judah, the line of Judah, who will rule the way Adam was supposed to. And we know that King David comes from the line of Judah, and 2 Samuel 7 promises, God makes a promise to King David that he will have a son who reigns forever and ever. So 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13 says, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So with that promise in 2 Samuel 7, God is promising that the savior of the world, the king that we've been waiting for ever since the fall of Adam, the one who's going to come from the line of Abraham, the one who's going to come from the line of Judah, he's going to be a Davidic son. He's going to be a Davidic king. So this son of David will sit on David's throne forever and ever and rule the way that Adam was supposed to rule. And then according to the prophets, this promised Davidic king is the savior of the world. Isaiah 9 promises that the king who will sit on David's throne will have an everlasting kingdom of peace. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
prince of peace and of the increase of his government. There will be no end. Isaiah 11 promises that this promised Davidic king will be anointed by the spirit and he will rule and he will reign with wisdom and justice and righteousness. And that his, the result of his rule is that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord the way that the waters cover the sea. So just as Adam's rule and as he was supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with God's dominion so that the world would know what he is like, this king will fulfill what Adam was supposed to. That as a result of his reign and rule, the, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Jeremiah 33 adds that this Davidic king, his kingdom will be so certain that it's more certain than the rising of the sun. And Ezekiel 34 adds that this Davidic king will be a good shepherd who will care for his people and love his people and feed his people and protect his people. And we could go on, but the, the, Old, the Old Testament anticipates from beginning to end this savior of the world who will be a king. Ever since the fall of Adam, we've been waiting for a king. And don't you just know it? This world, we are crying out. We are, we are longing for a good king. And it's not just our political environment. It's been true ever since Genesis 3. The world has been longing for a good and righteous king. A king who will be what Adam was supposed to be. A king who will be what Adam failed. Adam, all of his descendants failed to be. So, Nathaniel describes Jesus as the king of Israel. He also refers to him as the son of God. So we need to consider that title as well because that's a very important title. And as New, New Testament Christians, it could be easy to hear the title Son of God and assume that that just refers to Jesus' deity. And please hear me, Jesus is the Son of God. That is what it means, but there's layers to that. And I don't think Nathaniel, at this point in time, knows quite yet what he's talking about. He doesn't know how true, he, true it is. He doesn't know that Jesus is God. He's using a messianic title from the Old Testament. So there's layers of what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. Because in fact, in the Old Testament, there's lots of people who are referred to as the Son of God. In Genesis 5, Adam, it's implied that he's referred to as the Son of God. Exodus 4 refers to Israel as God's son. 2 Samuel 7 refers to David and his sons as God's son. But obviously, Adam and David, Israel, David's sons, they were not actually God. So what, is, what does the title mean? How can the Bible use that title to describe Adam and Israel and David? Well, in order to understand that title, we need to go back to Genesis 1 again. It all starts in Genesis 1. And we know that God created Adam and Eve in his image so that he could, they could image him, be the reflections of his glory. And this, this idea of being an image of God is, is related to the title Son of God. Because if, if you've seen my two-year-old son, Roman, you know that he is a, a spitting image of me. He is a mini-me. You look at him, the way he smiles, the way he looks, a stranger can look at him and know that's Mitch's son. And my son, so my son Roman provides a, a physical image of me. And with, with people who are created in the image of God, we don't image God physically, because God, God doesn't have a body. He, he's a spirit, he's invisible, you can't see him. Instead, we're to image the character of God. As humans, we have the ability to reflect God's goodness, his, his holiness, his justice, his righteousness, his ability to love. And so this title, Son of God, just as, just as people look at Roman and say, that's, that's Mitch's son, if you're worthy of the title Son of God, if you're reflecting God 
and his character, you, you look at that person and like, that, that's one of God's son. He's, he's living up to the family name. And yet, as we know the story, no one in the Old Testament lives up to the title son of God. Adam didn't image God in a way that was worthy of the title son of God. Adam rebelled against God. His sin and rebellion didn't reflect the glory of God in a way that people looked at Adam and said, that's God's son. Instead, it distorted it. And the same was true of Israel. Israel didn't reflect the image of God in a way that was worthy of being titled son of God. They looked more like the nations. And we know the same is true of David and his sons. David fell short. His sons all fall short. None of them are worthy of the title son of God. No one would look at them and know what God was like. And yet Psalm 2 promises, verse 6 and 7, he promises that this, this king that we've been waiting for ever since the fall of Adam, and this, this person who will be worthy of the title son of God, who will rule in a way that pe- reminds people of God, Psalm 2 promises that that king is coming. So God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and I will tell of the decree, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So that's a lot of Old Testament background, anticipating the coming of a king who is worthy of the title son of God, who reflects the glory of God, who helps people know what God is like and the way he rules the world. And ever since the fall of Adam, we have been waiting for this savior. The world has been longing for this true king. And then look at Nathaniel's declaration. He says, Jesus, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. The one we've been waiting for, you are him. Finally, the king who is worthy of the title son of God, the one who will rule with justice and righteousness, the one who will rule God's world in a way that images God to the world, the true king and the one who is worthy of the title son of God. This is what makes Jesus the long-awaited savior. He is what Adam was supposed to be. And here's the crazy part. I alluded to this earlier, but... Nathaniel is more right than he even knew. He's using these messianic terms, referring to Jesus as the king and the son of God. And yet, the reality is, Jesus is not just a man who reflects God. He is actually the only begotten, eternal son of God. And he's not just the king of Israel. He is the king of creation. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the new and better Adam. He is who Adam was supposed to be. He is the savior of the world. And so Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, but he's even greater than what we even anticipated. He explodes the Old Testament anticipation of what the Messiah would be. He's not just the king of Israel who reflects God's image. He is the image of the internal God. He is God the Son incarnate. As a gospel city, most people are comfortable allowing Jesus to be their sacrificial lamb. And yet, have you surrendered to him as king? Have you surrendered to him as king of your finances? King of your marriage? King of your hopes and dreams for why you exist? King of the desires? King of your heart? As Christians, we don't just get to prove of God's lamb. We, we bow to God's king. We follow God's king. This is who we follow. We follow King Jesus 
the image of the invisible God, the true and better Adam, the long-awaited king, the only human in the history of the world worthy of the title Son of God. And the way that he rules the world reminds us of who God is. He's not just the Lamb of God, he's the King of God. And for him to be our sacrificial savior, we bow to him, we confess that he is Lord, and we follow him as king. This is who we follow, this is who we love, this is who we worship, the long-awaited king. Number six, the last one, we follow Jesus for he is the only Savior. He is the only Savior. So look down at verse 50. It says, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? Surely you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Nathaniel declares, declares that Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus responds, buddy, you haven't seen nothing yet. You believe me just because I said I saw you under the fig tree? I mean, get, get your popcorn ready, because there's plenty more where that came from. Obviously, that's a rough paraphrase. In order to actually understand what Jesus says, we have to go back to Genesis 28. So we're going to back to Genesis again. Genesis 28 records the vision, or Jacob's dream, Jacob's ladder. So if you've read through Genesis, maybe this story stuck out to you as being a little bizarre. But here we understand the purpose of it. Genesis 28:12 says that Jacob dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So Jacob has a dream, and in this dream, there's a ladder all the way up to heaven. He heaven is open, and the angels of God are ascending and descending on this ladder. And we all know what a ladder's for. A ladder helps you climb up to something to where you couldn't otherwise get to. So now look back to John 1, 51. And Jesus says that his disciples are going to see the exact same thing that Jacob saw. They're going to see heaven open, and they're going to see angels ascending and descending. And yet there's one important difference. Because in Genesis 28, the angels are ascending and descending on a ladder. And in John 1, Jesus says the angels will be ascending and descending on him. And so in other words, Jesus is the ladder. Jesus is the way. He is the way. He is the one who opens heaven. He is the connecting point between heaven and earth. We could not possibly hope to climb up to heaven, and yet Jesus has come down to make a way to open heaven so that humanity, God, could dwell with man forever and ever. No one comes to the Father except through him, and yet Jesus has made a way. It's not just that there's no way. He is the one way, and he is the ladder. And so John writes the rest of his gospel to explain how Jesus makes the way. Jesus opens the way to heaven by dying on the cross on the, and then rising on the third day so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life being opened up to heaven, dwelling with him forever and ever. And so gospel City, let's, let's just take a step back and marvel at what John 1 reveals to us about Jesus. It reveals that he is the eternal son of God, that he was in the beginning with God. So it starts in eternity past. And then it says that God created the world through him and that Jesus stepped down from heaven, took on human flesh, dwelt among us, that he revealed God's glory to us. And then he died, he was slaughtered like a lamb as a substitute for our sins. And then he rose again, fulfilling everything that the Old Testament promises and anticipates, proving that he is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the King, the obedient son, the obedient to the point of death on a cross. 
And through his death and resurrection, he has opened the way to heaven so that whoever believes in him will never die. So if John 1 starts in eternity past, it goes to the incarnation, it highlights the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, and then it gives us a window into eternity future where we will dwell with the Son of Man for all eternity in his kingdom because he is the way. And now Jesus is summoning followers so that whoever repents and believes in him, whoever repents of their sin and believes that he is the way, will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so as we close, Gospel Study, I have one question for you. My question is, which Jesus are you following? Because the, the Jesus of John 1 is worth more than a couple hours of your week. The Jesus of John 1 is more interesting than your phone or your TV. The Jesus of John 1 is worth living for more than your career or more than retirement, more than the American dream. The Jesus of John 1 has the power to free you from slavery to porn and slavery to alcohol and slavery to video games. The Jesus of John 1 leaves us no reason to be worried or depressed, despite all the, wars, the reasons the world throws at us. If you follow the Jesus of John 1, it will change everything about you. He doesn't just save you from sin and leave you in your sin. He summons you to follow him so that you become like him. Followers of Jesus love what Jesus loves. They hate what Jesus hates. If you believe in the Jesus of John 1, you will love him. You will obey him. You will abide in him. You will come to him. You will tell others about him. You will follow him. You will become like him. And you will hunger and you will thirst to behold his glory forevermore. Some of us think we follow the Jesus of John 1, but in reality, we follow a Jesus of our own imagination. We follow a Jesus who we think gives us free hell insurance just because we prayed a prayer all those years ago, and yet he has no power and no authority to change anything about our lives. But if the Spirit is convicting you this morning, if he is opening your eyes to behold the Jesus of John 1, I would invite you to repent of your sin and confess that this is the true king. And if he's the king of creation, he's the king of you and he's the king of me. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you are saved, you will spend the rest of your life following him. And if you follow him, you'll become like him because that's what it means to be a disciple. And so for the rest of us, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. We believe that Jesus is the word of God. We believe that he dwelt among us. We believe that he is the lamb of God. We believe that he is the son of man, the son of God, the eternal king. We believe that he has opened heaven's way. We believe that he is worth leaving everything for to follow. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. Lord, help us to abide in him. Help us to love him. Help us to obey him. Help us to behold his glory forevermore. For from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Help us to stop seeking the things of this world. Help us to only seek Jesus, follow Jesus, and spend our life encouraging others to follow this King Jesus. Lord, we believe in the Jesus of John 1. Help our unbelief. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that the eternal Son dwelt among us so that he could reveal to us your glory, so that he could die as our sacrificial lamb, so that he could rise on the third day, open heaven, so that there is a way to dwell with you for all of eternity. And we thank you that by your grace he is summoning followers. He left heaven's throne to seek and save the lost. And so, Lord, for those of us here today who believe in Jesus Christ, Lord, we pray that you would help us to lay off all the weights and sins that cling so closely and that we would run the race with perseverance, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, that we would deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him, for he is worthy. 
He is what this life is about. And Lord, for those of us who do not know Christ, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would help us to see that we are trusting in a false assurance. We are trusting in a false savior. You would pray that you would reveal to us the Jesus of John 1, the Jesus of John 1 that changes everything and that you would help us to follow him, leave everything, love him, abide in him, tell others about him and behold his glory forevermore. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.